Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're going to fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're going to stand, we stand as giants. If we're going to walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. I'm Carmen LaBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network, thrilled to be with you today. Where are we? What are we doing? What's going on? And is your name Steve? I know that sounds like an odd question, but yeah, if your name is Steve, I want to know that you're out there today because it's like Steve Week. It's not quite Steve Week. I mean, we didn't actually name it Steve Week, but it's kind of Steve Week here on the show. We've had um, two Steves check in this week with us as guests and you know, they were great. It was really, really fun. Great conversation a couple of days ago with Steve K. Scott. If you missed that conversation, you should go and listen to it at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And yesterday we talked with Pastor Steve Swan from the Northwest Territory of Canada. Um, and now we all want to go to Yellowknife. So is your name Steve? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Text me because this is your week. I mean, unofficially, but there you go. Text me at 877-933-2484. I want to know, Steve, Stephen, any derivation of the name Steve. I don't really know any derivation other than Steve or Stephen. Stephanus. Stephanus. (gasps) Stephanus. Yeah. Nice. If there's (laughs) definitely, if there's a Stephanus listening, (laughs) I want to hear. And Stephanie, I suppose we could hear, we could, uh, you you know, we could, we could make this, uh, yeah, we could make this work for everybody. Maybe maybe you're Stevie. I think there's a, you know, there's, yeah. No wonder, there's, right? There's girls who go by the name Stevie. So there you go. All right. Um, I want to hear from you. 877-933-2484. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is Proverbs 21, verse 3, which always leads me to wonder, where in the word are you today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, our verse of the day, Proverbs 21.3, the Lord is more pleased when we do what is right and just than when we offer him sacrifices. So what is that about? Well, that is about, um, if I were going to make a New Testament parallel, um, God loves the sacrifice of, of the widow who only has two small copper coins to put in the offering than, um, than he does the, the gift that costs the rich person nothing. So God's more pleased when we do what is right and just. So justice and righteousness matter to God far more than um, than the things that we sometimes offer him as sacrifices. So just consider that today. Um, all right, I have a scenario for us to consider. So I'm going to draw a little word picture for you right now. So, you know, get your get your imagination juiced up. So Kim is seven years old. She is a second grader. She's um, looking forward to going back to school this fall. Her public pre-K sent her home under COVID lockdowns a couple of years ago. um, And her public school district offered only remote learning for her as a kindergartner. You can imagine how awful and complex that was. So her mom learned that there was a Christian school having in-person classes. And so... um, Kim's mom, who is a single mom, thought uh, Kim would be far better off 
an in-person learning um, at this private Christian school, which is church-based, then, um, you know, then she would be, you know, frankly, not going to school at all, which is what was going to happen if, uh, if she was going to have to continue her education, um, you know, at home on a computer as a kindergartner. So she's been attending um, this school on a scholarship for two years. Now, most of the kids at the school are in families like Kim's who can't afford private school tuition, but the church is happy to help. They are also open to receiving the federal funds for things like providing lunch. Like many kids, Kim qualifies to receive a free lunch that's paid for by funds from the federal government through the USDA. But unlike public schools where enrollment is down, this church-based school is busting at the seams. And unlike public schools that are having a difficult time getting teachers to return to the classroom or attract new teachers, this church-based school is fully staffed. Kim loves it. She is loved there. She is known um, they have a full complement of what we call, uh, back in the day, we called them lunch ladies. Now that leads to the intersection of the clash of worldviews where we find ourselves today and the sexual politics of the day. It leads to the question of whether or not, whether or not those lunch ladies at that church-based school are going to be able to provide a lunch for Kim. Why? Because following the Biden administration's inclusion of sexual orientation and gender identity in Title IX definitions of sex-based discrimination, the church-based school found itself facing the challenge of losing its USDA lunch money. Now, Kim, who is just a kid who needs both an education and a lunch, doesn't know who's paying for her scholarship, and she doesn't know who's paying for her lunch. And she shouldn't have to worry about losing either one. Steve West joins us next with this question. Does Kim either have to leave the church-based school that she loves or have lunch? Or can she have both? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's Steve Week. I mean, not officially, but it's kind of unofficially Steve Week here on Mornings with Carmen. And we are welcoming Steve West. He is the editor of the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine. You guys know him. And if you're not already getting the Liberties Roundup, you should be. And you can do so at WNG.org. Steve, welcome back. Uh, Good morning, Carmen. Thanks for having me back. And I'm glad to help you wind up Steve Week. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, you and Paul Perot um, here on the show had a conversation about um, lunch money and Christian schools and um, a case in Florida. So maybe reset that table and then bring us up to date. Sure. You kind of set up that scenario with your uh, story about Kim. It's a really a, a very real story for 56 students at this Tampa Bay School Grant Park Christian Academy, which were threatened with being uh, thrown out of the National School Lunch Program by USDA over their unwillingness to comply with Title IX dictates. In other words, they were unwilling to hire and fire teachers based on uh, their, you know, uh, uh, based on gender. They were uh, to assign restrooms and uh, locker rooms or uh, bathrooms, you know, based on 
on uh, gender identity and not sex. They were unwilling to comply with that because it violated their Christian beliefs and therefore they uh, risk being pitched out of the program. Thankfully, that has a good ending because uh, although they were required to uh, file a lawsuit to try to get this changed, the USDA actually changed position and agreed that they did not need to comply with Title IX. So a good ending to that story uh, last week. Yeah, so Kim gets to stay at her church-based school, and she gets to have lunch. So, yay! Uh, so that's exactly. The, exactly. We should cheer when we can. All right. Um, yeah. I uh, I appreciated that the USDA clarified um, specifically by saying, "Hey, you don't actually have to submit a written request for Title IX exemption in order to claim one." I thought that was good news. So, if you are listening right now and you have a church-based school or you're affiliated with a church-based school. The USDA um, actually does not require religious schools to submit written requests for Title IX exemptions in order to claim a Title IX exemption, although you're probably protecting yourself if you do so. So um, uh, let's take a very, very brief break. And then, Steve, when we come back, I'd love for you to talk with us about what's going on at a particular California college where, well, maybe free speech isn't as free as we thought it was. Are you free to say what you want to say? Does it depend where you are? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Steve West on Steve Day. Hey, if your name's Steve, any derivation of Steve, Stephanie, Stevie, Steve, Stephen, I would like to hear from you this morning. Text me at 877-933-2484 and check in. Um, All right, Steve West, tell us what's going on at Clovis Community College and why it matters to us. Well, here's a college in Fresno or the Fresno area of California that really needs a lesson in free speech because there is a student group on campus called the Young Americans for Freedom, a conservative group, and they wanted to post uh, two posters on campus and sought permission to do that. And uh, they were given permission, but in one case were consigned sort of to a uh, what one of the students referred to as a place where none of the students go, uh, and the other poster was uh, actually ordered to be taken down. Now, what were they? Well, the posters were uh, two. There was a there was a, one that said abortion ends more lives than cancer. We've probably seen that uh, before. Uh, that was the one that was sort of banished to an area where no one would see it. And the other poster was one that um, sort of bemoaned totalitarian regimes. Uh, it was in celebration of Freedom Week. And it just talked about the number of people that were uh, uh, killed in China and the Soviet Union, Cambodia, Afghanistan, totalitarian countries, uh, how many people died in those countries. And after some complaints, the president of the university ordered the posters removed. And 
just said they weren't club announcements uh, and that some people found them offensive. Now, why they're offensive, I don't know. <laughs> but can't imagine. But but they were ordered to be taken down. So um, the, in the in the club, the uh, college's policy, uh, there was no policy that basically talked about uh, what standard uh, the uh, university would use in terms of you know, what posters were appropriate and which were not. And so the club contacted the Foundation for Individual Rights of Expression, and they filed a lawsuit uh, just saying that this was an egregious violation of the First Amendment. It was viewpoint discrimination. And that's where that stands. Still no, still no resolution to that case. When we think about free speech and we think about viewpoint discrimination, um, what are just what are some of the things we should be thinking about, Steve? Because you're thinking about this all the time and most of us are not. We're just living our lives and we're we assume that we can exercise um, our rights uh, under the First Amendment to say what, frankly, comes to mind in the moment wherever we are. Um, But there is some like locational like it's location dependent there are some places where i cannot say some things for good cause and so can you talk with us a little bit about you know like does they does a community college have a right to tell people where they can say certain things or where certain things can be posted or published right you know these uh schools like employers like uh government you know government buildings, for example, government authorities, can uh, can give out or can provide sort of a time, place, and reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions uh, on uh, the types of free speech that can be given. For example, uh, universities can uh, have, have a bit of control over what actually goes on inside of a classroom uh, in the interest of preserving you know, class order. Uh, they can do that. Uh, but they also have been quite restrictive sometimes in terms of what kind of speech can happen or where speech can happen outdoors on campus. And those kind of regulations have not been upheld by the courts very often. The the bottom line is that um, wherever it's reasonable and doesn't cause a disturbance, um, should be able to uh, say pretty much what you want to say uh, without a restriction based on your viewpoint, whether it's conservative or liberal or religious or non-religious, whatever it is, you should be able to say what you want to. We also think about, you know, teachers or employees uh, in, say, teachers in the school system, for example, they don't have a right to say anything they want to in the classroom. Uh, They're teaching students in the classroom. But when they go outside of the classroom and they're speaking on a matter of public concern in their private capacity, they have a great deal of freedom to say what they want to say. So we've seen some cases uh, about those types of situations as well, whether it's a teacher or whether it's an employee that's out there uh, posting something on social media about a, uh, you know, an issue that they're concerned about. They should be able to have the freedom to do pretty much do that uh, uh, carte blanche. All right. We're um, we're continuing our conversation with Steve West. We're getting a little bit of an education on free speech. Um, and that's actually Steve's area of expertise. You can find um, you can find Steve and the Liberties Update at World News Group, WNG.org. Talk with us about what's going on with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. This I mean, I feel like FCA is all, almost always in the crosshairs of some of these conversations across the country. Um, in part, probably because they're a nice big target to shoot at. Um, talk with us about what's going on with FCA. 
But, you know, FCA, like uh, like it should, has a, a position on um, marriage is between one man and one woman. So this is not uh, acceptable uh, to a number of people in society now. It's not viewed as a view. It's not, it's not seen as a view that uh, really has legitimacy. And so what they ran into at a uh, high school in the San Jose, California area, is just a, um, the high school said they had to sign a non-discrimination agreement in order to be on campus. Uh, and so they couldn't sign the agreement because that non-discrimination agreement provided that not only did you have to welcome anybody who has any views into membership in the chapter, which they do, but you also had to open your leadership to anybody, anybody on the campus, any student, no matter what their their faith or lack of faith, uh, no matter whether they agreed with the faith statement of the group or not, and the group could not do that. And so that's why they uh, risk being banished from campus. So what happened last week was that the um, uh, originally a trial court sided with the school on this issue, and it's gone up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so a panel of judges from that court heard oral arguments last week on whether or not uh, it should overrule the trial court. And I think really the thing that's at issue here is whether the school actually has what's called an all-commerce policy or what uh, the SEA has referred to as a, a some-commerce policy. In other words, they favor some secular groups over religious groups. And I think it really, in the oral argument, I think the judges, at least two of the judges, really got the sense that school is not being consistent in how it applies uh, its policy. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example of this. They have a group called the senior women. And while the senior women signed the non-discrimination form, they also wrote on the form in their own handwriting, uh, this is limited to seniors and it's limited to women, which is <laughs> discriminatory, of course. <laughs> makes perfect sense, but it's discriminatory. And one of the judges said, well, also you've got um, you've got uh, a group called Big Sisters, Little Sisters, uh, it really doesn't make sense to have boys saying, I'm going to mentor a female student. Uh, or you've got the um, Latino male mentor group, which pretty much says what it is. I mean, um, can anybody be uh, in the Latino male mentor group? Well, probably not. It's, it's uh, discriminatory on its face. All of these things make perfect sense, but it also makes perfect sense for FCA to be able to say our leaders need to be able to subscribe to our statement of faith. So it'll be interesting to see how this particular one comes out. You know, we've seen this kind of thing in the university environment, and some university officials have really been uh, hammered by this because courts have said, look, you can't uh, you can't discriminate against, um, for example, in this case, it was the University Christian Fellowship at the University of Iowa because they want uh, their leaders to be in line with their faith. Uh, that's viewpoint discrimination. It's also religious discrimination. So perhaps the same thing will happen in this situation as we await uh, the decision. They're actually waiting for the decision uh, soon before the school year starts so they know whether or not they can be on campus. But as of this morning, at least, uh, there's no ruling from the court yet. We have a listener making the observation about our earlier conversation about lunch. And I think it applies here as well. Um I believe in the future, you know, Christians will not be able to accept government money without repercussions. You and I would probably say without strings attached. Um, and, you know, where is the church in this matter? Uh, and how much, you know, can it 
reasonably cost to provide lunch for 56 kids. I think that the um, maybe while we would say uh, in this particular case, these kids are already on scholarships, right? There's already a financial burden being borne on their behalf for them to attend. Um, and if um, if education in this country is going to be successful and for everyone, um, then kids are going to have to be able to access education outside of the public school system in order, you know, to get the best education for them and one that matches what their family, what their family wants. And some of that will be homeschooling, but much of it will be provided um, in an institutional setting, in this case, a church-based educational program um, or a church-sponsored educational program. And so um, I think communities are going to have to think through this, um, and we're going to have to think through this as believers and how much investment we're willing to make um, in the future of emerging generations. You know, it, they're not, they're not quote-unquote, our kids, maybe the way we have thought about, quote-unquote, our kids, but they are the future of the country and um, I want to live in a culture where where kids are educated in ways that honor God and um, and honor the dignity of every person. And so I would like to see kids um, in church based schools as much as possible. And I think that it's not unreasonable um, if those funds are being made available to others um, to feed kids at, at lunchtime. I see no reason that um, a church based school shouldn't access those funds as well, or those funds shouldn't be accessible if they want to use them. But the strings attached part, the strings attached is, is the issue going forward. Yeah, Carmen, I think that um, there's two things that work here. One is that uh, if the government provides a benefit, it should be applied, applied even handedly without discrimination. So that's an important principle to insist on. You know, at the same time, we can say, well, maybe it's a good not to be in a situation where there are strings attached. You know, there's a for example, in Arizona, there's um, the educational savings account that the uh, law that the state has passed recently, where every family gets seven thousand uh, dollars, basically in their educational savings accounts, and they can use that money to go to whatever school they want to go to, uh, which may not kick them all the way, but it's a substantial thing and leads to a lot more educational choice there, and a lot more kids choose schools that are in line with uh, with, with their religious viewpoint. If you live in Arizona, we're all a little bit jealous of that particular uh, particular plan. So we can learn from Arizona on this particular front. Steve West, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And for the Liberties Roundup, you guys can sign up to receive the Liberties Roundup at WNG.org. Listening to Mornings with Carmen, I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, it's uh, unofficially uh, the end of Steve Week here on Mornings with Carmen. And uh, David says, um, hey, my best friend, um, his name is Steve. I've known him since kindergarten in 1960. Does that count? Yes, Dave, um, that counts if you send a link to today's show to Steve, to whom we just gave a shout out. So um, there you go. And also um, Barb who wonderfully um, sent me uh, on the text line a picture of the rainbow that she is looking at right now while she's walking the dog and uh, and listening. And I asked back any chance that the dog's name is Steve, but in fact, um, she says, well, it's close. It's Zorro. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I'm just having a little, little fun this morning with you. I appreciate that. A little laughter on this Friday morning. Hey, our friend Daniel DeWitt is going to join us next. 
You know him um, from the Theo Latte blog. So if you've got your coffee ready and you want a little uh, theology this morning, we are going to do the Weekend Worldview Reader with Dan DeWitt. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, summer is over. The academic year has begun, and Dan DeWitt is back. You can find what he's writing at theolatte.com. And if you're looking for him, he is now a senior fellow at Southwest Baptist University, where he leads the Center for Worldview and Culture. Dan, good morning, and welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. It's always a joy to join you, even when I've not had enough coffee, which is the case today. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you're bringing us a good word for a new semester today, and it starts with a conversation about a town that has three traffic lights, and the middle traffic light changes its pattern depending on whether or not school is in or out of session. Tell us about that. Yes, so our town has three traffic lights, and the middle one is right between our our small town of about 3,000 people, Cedarville, Ohio. it has a local school where my kids go, and it's elementary all the way through high school in one building. There's about 450 kids there. And right across the street is the local university. And on the main street in between the two campuses, um, there's a traffic light. And during the summer, the traffic light becomes a flashing yellow light where you never have to stop. You never have to worry about keeping the speed your speed below whatever it is, 15 or 20 miles an hour. Um, but a few days before school starts, it becomes an ominous warning to everyone in the town. Summer has sadly come to an end. And that light traffic light changed about this time last week. So for the rest of us who live in places where our towns are not that well organized. So <laughs> I have a sign that um, it's just dormant that doesn't have a it doesn't have a flashing light on it except for the couple of days before school starts. And then yeah. it's it starts flashing yellow to remind us that there's a school zone ahead and we got to start thinking about that 15 miles per hour speed limit. So, yeah, I think that I think that the flashing yellow light, either when it comes on or goes off, depending on where you live, is a good reminder that summer is over and those yellow school buses, the wheels are about to turn again. So you are going to offer a good word for students preparing to kick off the new school year. Let's have it. Well, you know, if, if the people listening to this have kids at home um, or even if their kids are gone, they certainly know the emotion of it. Or if you're just someone who's went to school before, you don't have to have kids. The, our house right now is a mixture of excitement, anxiety, and kind of sadness <laughs> with summer ending. Summer is a fun time. School is a more serious time. And so what I wanted to do is offer people who might be a bit anxious about school or even a bit excited a good word. And that encouragement comes out of Psalm 73. So Psalm 73 is one of those psalms that's not written by David. Anybody who's read the psalms knows that most of them are written by David. Some of them aren't. Um, Asaph has written a handful of psalms. Asaph, the author of Psalm 73, um, is actually a bit of a rock star. He was a worship leader. He wrote several psalms. He's also described as a seer or a prophet, and he had groupies. So he had students who were called the sons of Asaph. So he's kind of a big deal. 
And that makes his psalm, Psalm 73, all the more scandalous because in Psalm 73, he says that he questioned whether or not it was worth it to serve God. And I guarantee you, um, any kid going to school this this year, any person listening to this, is at some point going to come up against that question, is it really worth it to serve God? And so I wanted to take this psalm, this you know breathtakingly honest confession of Asaph, and take it and give an encouragement for students to draw near to God. So Asaph begins the psalm talking about the goodness of God. That's the first verse, Psalm 73, verse 1. He ends the psalm saying that what's good for him is to be near God. And so my encouragement to students is to remember what's good in life. It's God. God gives us many things that can make us happy, but when we seek them as an end unto themselves, we find not happiness but despair. So what's good for us is to enjoy God's good gifts in God's way and to draw near to God. So my encouragement to anyone listening, if you're getting your backpack ready to head to school or to a parent preparing your kids for the semester, encourage them to spend time with God. That's what's good for them. That's what will help them keep focused this school year. So when we um, are thinking about drawing near to God, um, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Like some ways to um, maybe tangibly draw near, to remind ourselves, um, maybe there are some tricks of the trade here um, from your parenting playbook. Um, How do you help kids, young people, students make a plan to draw near to God and stay near God throughout the day during the school year? That, that's a great question, because, you know, sometimes that kind of language leaves us like with, I'm not sure what to do. I, I remember I was at a youth camp years ago. I had been a Christian for one day. I became a Christian the first day of camp. It was day two. And the speaker um, was telling us, when the service is over, you just need to find somewhere on the campus, the camp campus, and stay there until you love God with all your heart. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So camp's over. I've been a Christian today. Everybody is like not doing that. You know, they're going bowling or they're going to play putt-putt, going to get pizza, whatever. And I just went, walked out into the woods. I kneeled down um, kind of under a bush where I was kind of hidden and just prayed over and over again that I wanted to love God with all my heart. And I was so disappointed when after praying for about three minutes, you know, the bush didn't catch on fire and, you know, I didn't hear an audible voice from heaven. Or you I didn't, didn't know what catch to... on fire. I mean, yeah, you know. That's right. It could happen. And I was praying really <laughs> intently. Um, so, yeah, let me give you just uh, one easy thing you could do to start your day out by drawing near to God. The way that the best way we could draw near to God is to to focus on him. And the best way we could focus on him is to read what he's revealed to us about himself in the Bible. And so I would encourage anyone listening to this to consider the Psalms challenge. I didn't come up with this. In fact, I think it was Donald Whitney who teaches at Southern Seminary. A professor there came I think he came up with it. But it's um, you take whatever the calendar date is. So today's the 19th, and you read Psalm 19. It's a, a wonderful psalm, by the way, um, about how the nature speaks of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. So you read that. Then you add 30 to it, so you'd read Psalm 49, read that psalm. Then you add 30 to that, that'd be Psalm 79, read that psalm. Then add 30 to that, Psalm 109, and then add 30 to that, that would be Psalm 139. Aren't you impressed with my math? So that'd be Mm -hmm. Psalm 
139, and then you add 30 to that, but you can't add 30 to that because there's only 150 psalms. So if you do that, you'll essentially read the calendar date and then four more psalms. It's a total of five psalms. And if you do that every day of the month, you'll read all 150 psalms in one month's time. And if you do Hmm. that every month for a year, you will have read through the psalms 12 times in a year. And if you do that, what will start to happen is you'll start to look at life the way the psalmist looked at life. And that's, That's by definition, a biblical worldview. So that'd be my encouragement. Take the Psalms challenge this year. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Daniel DeWitt in just a moment. You can find what we're talking about today at theolatte.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at myfaithradio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. Picking back up in our conversation with Dan DeWitt, you can you can find the resources we're discussing today at theolatte.com. Um, let's let's jump topics here, Dan, and let's talk about going to church. Um, we should go to church. We shouldn't go to church. What's the value? I mean, there's just a lot of people who have checked out. So I'd love um, to have your thoughts on going to church. Well, I wrote this piece because I, I saw advertised on eBay. I like to collect old books. I like old mm. stuff. And I'm becoming older myself, actually, so that maybe that's a good thing. Um, but I saw this old book that was written by George Bernard Shaw, who lived around the time of one of my favorite Christian authors, G.K. Chesterton. And I, I've, I'm interested in Shaw because I like literature, and he wrote plays, and I like plays, so I'm aware of him. Um, But I also knew he was an atheist, which one of the cool things about he and G.K. Chesterton, you could read their their published letters. They wrote each other letters, and they spent time together, and they were friends. And George Bernard Shaw was friends with G.K. Chesterton's wife, and on one occasion wrote her a letter, um, and they were staging a prank that they were going to do against G.K. Chesterton. And all that's pretty remarkable when you think about Chesterton was a committed Christian, and Shaw was a committed atheist. But that's what surprised me when I saw this book, old book advertised. The title of the old book was On Going to Church, written by the atheist George Bernard Shaw. And in it, he talks about the value of church. He begins by saying that most people find inspiration either in uppers or downers. Now, those aren't his terms. He talks about people find um, inspiration either through things like caffeine that are uppers or things like alcohol, which are downers. And he discourages the use of both when it comes to writing and thinking deeply because he says they could cloud your thought. Now, I disagree as it relates to coffee. Nonetheless, he says, what is the alternative? The alternative is church. And he found inspiration by walking into a church building and that it lifted his mind away from the present day and turned his thoughts to things that are more important. 
And he said it helped him find the cathedral that was within him. And that's what, for him, what church was about. Now, there's so much we could say about this topic, but I will say this. I think it touches on what Charles Taylor, the the author, described as being haunted by transcendence, that there's this longing for something more than our physical senses can perceive. And I think even for this committed atheist, George Bernard Shaw, going to church reminded him that there's more. Mm. I think that's a good, um, good conversation to have with, you know, with people who are believers but have disengaged from church, but also non-believers and why they might be interested um, to try out church. And it's also, I think, like real advocacy for churches that look, uh, I'm going to, this is going to sound wrong, but look like they're supposed to, like <laughs> that, <Yeah. laughs> that, that, that feel like a cathedral um, with some permanence and and yes, they're costly, um, but there's a reason for that because uh, of what we're really trying to do in terms of honoring God. Um, all right, so I'm looking here at the latest edition of the Worldview Reader at theolatte.com, and I see there the two pieces we've discussed and then a series of articles. The first one in that list is Aristotle's Guide to Living Well. This is something written by Lawrence Evans at Philosophy Now. Um, what's in Aristotle's Guide to Living Well? Well, some people might be surprised to find that this quest for um, meaning and purpose, I, they probably wouldn't be surprised to know that that's been around as long as humans have been around, but they might be surprised to know that the early Greek philosophers really equated the good life with seeking virtue. Um, the good life wasn't merely by seeking pleasure or distraction, but rather the good life was found by seeking virtue as an end unto itself. And so this article kind of outlines the way that they thought about goodness. What does the happy life look like? How can we find happiness? Now, as Christians, we would say that all of God's good gifts, if taken as an end unto themselves, will lead to emptiness or despair, that we can't find ultimate happiness there. But I do think even a non-Christian or someone who's not living their life for Christ can find more happiness in seeking to be virtuous and serve others than they would find in a selfish life. So the selfish life is kind of like, as I heard one preacher once describe it, like juicy fruit gum, that it's the juiciest gum in all of gumdom. You put it in your mouth and there's an explosion of flavor for about 20 seconds, and then it tastes like wet cardboard. And what we find living in this world is when we live for ourselves, it, it can be really satisfying for a short amount of time. But what the Greek philosophers were pointing us to, what Aristotle's pointing us to, is are these higher values, things like goodness and virtue and service. Now that leads us to important and inescapable worldview questions like, where do those values come from? And for the Christian, we know that those values come from God. And as Augustine said, um, rightfully so many years ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Or to think of another Christian philosopher, Pascal, who argued that there's a God-sized vacuum in the heart of every person, and nothing can make it happy. Nothing can fill that void except for God himself. So I would encourage people to read this article and think about what are ways people try to find happiness apart from the Christian worldview, and then be reminded of the beauty of the Christian worldview, that it gives us a direction for happiness, but better than that, it gives us the end of happiness itself, Jesus Christ, the the Word 
incarnate. Yeah, this conversation about finality and that, you know, there's ultimately something final. Um, or I guess, as Aristotle put it, there's evidently something final. And the mm-hmm. choices that we make along the way eventually lead to something that will be final. And I think that that's an interesting conversation provoked by, you know, a philosopher that's not a Christian, right? I mean, we're we're talking here um, uh, about somebody thinking deeply about the world and everything in it and how it all works and how it works together and desiring um, a good life and how that would be defined. There's a lot here um, in, in terms of the conversations that we might have with each other and, and even with kids. I mean, I was um, intrigued by the conversation um, that, like, we're all raising little philosophers. The question is, what mm-hmm. kind of little philosophers are we raising? Um, and so maybe you and I can have that conversation in the future. Absolutely. C.S. Lewis once said that good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than to correct bad philosophy. And so right. we we need to not only think well and to reflect on our thinking, but you're absolutely right. We need to help others, especially young people, think about the way they think. And as Christians, we want that to be guided by the Bible. Mm. Daniel DeWitt, thank you for helping us think about what we're thinking about and to think about it in a way that glorifies and honors God. You guys can check out what Dan is writing and everything we discussed today at theolatte.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, I've pre- preserved a couple of minutes here um, today. Again, I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Um, I don't often try to do something substantive in the last couple of minutes of the show, but it's the end of the week, and um, you know, and I, I got some things I want to say. So I preserved a couple of minutes here to talk a little bit about what's going on with rivers around the world. So I want to have a conversation about what the rivers foretell. So here in the United States, the Colorado River, which is the literal lifeblood of the Southwest, supplying 40 million Americans with water and hydropower, is running so low that lakes uh, Mead and Powell are approaching what's called Deadpool levels. And if you know anything about um, hydropower and the way it works, Deadpool levels mean that there's not going to be any water flowing downstream from the dams. Uh, if you look at it on satellite images from NASA, it's now the worst drought in 1,200 years. It's not just the Colorado River. The Rio Grande River has dried up through Albuquerque. Um, and it's not just rivers here in the United States that are foretelling a, a terrible story. The Yangtze in China is running dry. NPR has reported that across Europe, uh, fish are dying, crops are shriveling, commerce is stuck as drought across the continent means that rivers now look like streams if they flow at all. In the UK, the source of the River Thames has dried up. In Germany, it's the Rhine. Um, And at risk um, from that particular uh, drought scenario in Germany, uh, crops, power plants, barge traffic, industry, fish populations, and river cruising have all come to a halt. And if you thought that we were going to be able, or you were going to be able to be baptized in the River Jordan in Israel, you're going to have to think again because today it's barely a trickle. You could find that information today um, reported both by the AP and by the LA Times. And so you say to yourself, huh, what's going on? Why are the rivers drying up? 
um, just in the last few days, um, the, both the Weather Channel, I mean, well, actually every news outlet, but from the Weather Channel, which, you know, <clears throat> is uh, you don't necessarily think of as a news outlet, but in this case, it is a news outlet, uh, Business Insider, because of the effects of uh, of drought and therefore rivers drying up uh, and the effects on commerce, um, to the New York Post, all reporting on the emergence of what, of what are called hunger stones. And so you say to yourself, huh, that sounds like a mythical thing, hunger stones. Um, well, you're not the only one who thought maybe it was a mythical thing. And so Snopes has a post on it. And anything that Snopes is posting on, you can be assured it is because there's a lot of people across the Internet talking about it. So what is a hunger stone? Well, a hunger stone is a what I would call um, hydrological marker set by people a long, long time ago, um, or it was a stone that was already in the river, but when the river dropped to levels at which famine then arrived in the land, they would chisel notes into the stones. So when these stones become visible, it is a sign of such serious drought that famine follows. So I want you to think about a hunger stone for just a moment, and I want you to think about all of the places across uh, Eastern Europe where the hunger stones are now clearly visible. Now, sometimes these are visible because, frankly, the water has been dammed up upstream. And so I recognize that there are times we see these hunger stones even in years when there is not drought. But this year, we're seeing the hunger stones because there is drought. And when rivers dry up, crops die and livestock dies and eventually people die. And we read about famines in the Bible um, and so I, I think that when, when we talk about um, famine and we talk about the reality of the possibility of a coming global famine, like we ought to be sober minded people about this. Uh, we read about famines in the Bible that lasted for years, affected global populations as people were forced to migrate to find food. I'll remind you of the famine that drove Abraham to Egypt, the famine that drove Isaac to the land of the Philistines, the famine that drove Jacob and his entire family out of Egypt. The book of Ruth opens with a famine that forced Naomi and her family first to move to Moab and then to move from it. And all of these stories remind us of the fragility of human life, our dependence upon the rain to fall and God to send it. It also reminds us that famine is an impetus for the movement of people and the fall of governments and the reorganization of societies. And so the way the Bible talks about famine is important. And so I'm encouraging all of us to do a biblical study of famines and what causes them. Because I think these hunger stones and these dried rivers around the world portend things to come. What's coming next is another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.